Courage to Hope with Tony LaGreca is a show supporting the fight for sobriety against substance abuse and changing the stigma that comes along with it. Tony has been helping families, friends, and loved ones discover recovery services as well as coping skills for over six years following the death of his own son to opioids. Join Tony and his guests each week as they reveal the courage to hope. Here's your host, Tony LaGreca. Thank you, Ben. This is Tony LaGreca, and this is The Courage to Hope. And tonight's guest is a Barbara Allen from the nice state of Maryland. Welcome, Barbara. Thanks, Tony. I appreciate the invitation. Very welcome. Now, I actually met Barbara at the grief conference in Framingham back in October, and she was one of the keynote speakers. And I think you were the last keynote speaker, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. I guess they saved the best for last. Thank so, you. Okay, Barbara's on a mission, and I'd like to first ask Barbara, how did you get on this mission? What is your motivation behind what you do now? The disease of addiction is something that I was always familiar with because many people in my family have struggled with it. But actually, after the death of my son, Jim, in 2003, which seems very long ago today, uh, but really doesn't, on on the other hand, but after Jim died... And I had already lost another brother to addiction. I first went through some grief processes, which is very normal. But then I began to research and read about addiction, the laws, how they were made, funding, the bias and prejudice. We know that that um, the disease of addiction or substance use disorder and mental health has great stigma in this country without question. But I had no clue how, 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 how much the, the bias and ignorance impacted the laws of this country, Im, you know, impacted the, the research, the medical research. The, everywhere I turned in my own learning, I was getting angrier and angrier at the ignorance that was killing people that I love. <clears throat> I will say that today I've lost not only my son, Jim, who was 35, my brother, Bill, who was 36, my brother, Tom, who was 64, and my niece, Amanda, who was 25 to this disease. But that was my impetus for saying, what in the heck is going on? And there were so many data points. Uh, At one point I found a website for NIH, National Institute of Health, for $75 million worth of research grants that were sitting there because nobody wanted to research this disease. That blew my mind. So I began looking at at funding, how funding comes from the federal government down to SAMHSA, down to the states. I began researching the laws that have been put into effect in in the US, going back to opium and marijuana. And I grew up in Arizona. And at one point when I was quite young, I worked for the county attorney's office and actually that comes from the land of the Miranda decision. I actually, as a youngster, I say youngster, I was in my early twenties, worked on the Miranda case um, and other legal cases as it relates to, to, to drugs coming across the border. It just, I just got so engrossed in understanding and learning. And I realized that before my son and my brother died, I knew a lot about 
what to do with the current system. But I didn't know anything about this other part of it. And so the more I researched, I began showing up at meetings. I began showing up at open forums. I began learning. And actually one time I was sitting in a meeting with the uh, DEA, um, Drug Enforcement uh, Agency. And I got put on a committee with them to put on an, a community event here in the, in the state. And it, meeting these people who a lot of folks will denigrate the DEA or law enforcement. But I got to meet people that were in that, in that world, re, uh, law enforcement. And it blew my mind how invested they were, invested they are in dealing with this issue. And from there, I just got put on committees. I got assigned to things by the governor, lieutenant governor. I began learning and learning and learning. And honestly, I could write down 12 or 15 different topics that for me, I just have that kind of mentality where I need to understand. So if I'm going to get involved with legislation, whether it's at the state or the federal level, I need to know why. I need to understand why, how did it get to where it is? What do we need to do to change it? What are the barriers? And it just, I, I can't believe, honestly, Tony, when I think about, I gave my son's eulogy. And when I did that, there's no way on this earth that I ever knew I would be doing what I'm doing today, almost 21 years later. I had no idea the people I would meet, no idea the depth of things I would learn. And the best part of what I do, honestly, today, Tony, I always say I don't get paid, so I can't be fired. But the best part is I get to say what needs to be said, not what people want to hear. And that's the gift why I do what I do. Can you give me some examples of the committees you were on and the some of the things that you have to say that, you, that people don't want to hear what you say, you know, what you're talking about there? Well, I have, I have been involved in probably 19 different committees, co coalitions and commissions in the state of Maryland alone and a couple at the federal level. But I'll give you some great examples. One that people don't think about honestly, is parity. There's a Federal Parity Act um, passed in 2008, which says insurance providers must cover mental health substance use disorders at the same level they cover somatic or physical health issues. So if you have heart disease, then whatever your coverage you get there, you should get the same for mental health or substance use disorder treatment. But that's not what happens. So I have learned so much about parity laws I had no idea how complex it was. I had no idea how much insurance uh, carriers, providers, push back on paying what will save people's lives. And that's what I'm about, is saving lives. So that's an example a lot of people don't even think about. Another one I served at the governor level um, was assigned to, and that has to do with the, what, what do we need to do now, I want to be clear that while I'm talking about co-occurring, so about 60 to 70% of people who have suffered from substance use disorders have some form of mental health disorder as well. And it's often depression, anxiety, panic attacks. 
So that's what we refer to as co-occurring. But we don't have a medical system that integrates those. And we don't have an insurance system which integrates those. So serving on a statewide organization uh, commission by underneath the uh, governor and lieutenant governor, it's what are the issues we need to face? What are the problems? What are the barriers? And it's really empowering to sit in a room with the heads of a state. And I'm talking about um, Department of Public Safety because that has to do with it. The Department of, of uh, or Health, Department of Education, and on and on and on to sit in the same room with these people to have the same vote, the same authority to speak as these individuals. And one of my favorite realities was working closely with the Lieutenant Governor. People would give their testimony or their comments about certain things. And then the Lieutenant Governor would turn to me and say, okay, now we hear, need to hear from Barbara because she's gonna tell us what is the average person on the street? What does the average person want? Why is this important? And so it, it dropped from being a policy discussion to a human being discussion. So that's another, another example. Uh, another thing we've worked on, and this has been true for about over 10 plus years, is something as simple and, and ubiquitous these days as naloxone. So it's a, it's a as probably everybody knows, this is a overdose re, um, reversal medication. Our health, our uh, fire department, for example, has been giving us out for some 40 plus years. But it wasn't available through police as a rule, and not in the state of Maryland anyway. And it wasn't available to the average citizen. So if you have a loved one struggling with substance use disorder, you should have access to this medication, is our, was our opinion. So we went before the state legislature, we lobbied, and we got what's called a standing order, which means in the state of Maryland, you can go to any pharmacy and you can purchase this through the pharmacy. And in Maryland and many other states right now, it's becoming an over-the-counter medication that you can get without a standing order or without a script from a doctor. We're also fine-tuning that now because it now comes in different, different dosages, two milligram, four milligram, eight milligram. And we're working on cleaning up some legislation at that level. I work with the legislature um, all year round. Our legislative process goes for 90 days and we're in session now. So that's another a whole other um, coalition that I work with is at the, at the state level, working with the legislators in the Senate and in the House within Maryland and uh, advocating for laws to be changed. Um, I work at the local levels with our school system and making sure that our students have access to education, that they aren't um, really left blind that they understand naloxone, they understand prevention issues. They, the, the, the stigma of not my child, if you will, not my child is gonna be dealing with this stuff. We're a good family, we go to church, we've had vacations together. Unfortunately, the tragedy is that is not a protective uh, reality. So making sure the parents are educated as well as the kids. So we work with the school system. Um, Barbara, I want to ask you some questions sure, on what you said already. It. Go for it. Said naloxone comes in two, four, and eight ounce. And now you're talking about the, Mega, the nasal. Yeah. Yeah. Now, how would one know 
whether to get a two ounce, four ounce, or an eight ounce. What's the difference? And okay. I, I have a guess, but I'd like to hear your answer. Great question. Absolutely great question. So a four ounce, four milligram is what's a typical dosage that has been out for a very long time. We're finding through what's called uh, overdose response centers or places where you can go and use medication like New York um, with uh, its programs up there. They're doing uh, smaller doses, which was referred to as microdosing, And that helps people come out of the overdose more gently. So, but the four milligram is the typical one. And if you go to pharmacies, at least in Maryland today, you'll be able to opt to choose a four milligram or an eight milligram. Eight milligram pulls somebody out very quickly. And that can be very problematic for an individual who gets pulled out quickly and gets disoriented. It doesn't have kind of the mental acuity to gradually come out of an overdose situation. Uh, so that's, so they, they really serve several different purposes, but we do support a typical four, meg, uh, four milligram dosage. We do not support eight milligram every single time, like for all of our EMTs or as a parent, I wouldn't carry it. I carry four milligram naloxone with me at all times, as an example. Um, so that's that's another level of, it helps to know what's going on. So good question. Uh, well, I was told that I knew somebody that had overdosed on fentanyl. Yeah. And the, the naloxone that they used didn't work. Right. It wasn't strong enough, I would assume, because fentanyl, everybody says is, 10 times stronger than, than, than heroin or opioids and so forth. Is that, in your opinion, is that true? So there are, so it can be very much so because of the junk that's put in street drugs these days and fake pills, which are a major issue. I always carry two doses of naloxone. If one isn't working, the number one thing is you call 911. Then you, you do your first um, uh, uh, four meg, four milligram dose of, of naloxone. If they're not responding, you give them a four milligram to come to come next. Hopefully by then you've got EMS on site. Um, carfentanil, which was much worse even than fentanyl, that's, if, if you know, but rarely do you know what somebody has, an eight milligram might help them come out of it quicker, but we don't know what somebody has. And that's where we get into the challenge of what's the dosage? Four milligram, you call 911, you give four, four of the, the uh, milligram, and then you follow up with another four if they're not responding in, in two plus minutes. Then you have some time for, for EMS, for your emergency services to help or bring, helps bring them out. So unfortunately, it's not a one, one six fits all, so to speak. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, well that's what I was wondering. So if you, but yeah. to be on the safe side, do the four milligrams is going to be the, the, uh, the 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 more common average one. That's it, the one I, we recommend because it, it, we know that some people come out of an overdose situation and they can become violent. They become you know they they don't understand what's going on. They may have a very strong reaction. So the eight is under the right usage can be very effective, absolutely. But it also can, you may pay, the person may pay a price of being belligerent, being obnoxious, being violent. And 
for somebody who might be giving it in a in a home situation or um, a friend of mine did it in a dressing room in a, in a store, you want to bring them up. You want to save their lives, but you want to bring them up in a gradual way, if that makes sense. And okay. I'm not a, I'm not a trained physician. I can just tell you that's what I've learned and that's how I've used it. All right. So what is your opinion on, um, they call them different things, but I think the last term I, I heard was um, overdose prevention facilities. I'm a fan. I'm a huge fan. Overdose response uh, sites. This is a place where someone would go that has already purchased their drug of choice. And um, they've been in, in a place in like Vancouver, Canada, in Spain, in um, uh, Denmark, uh, in Ireland, Dublin, for many, many years, for decades. And to this day, no one has died of an overdose using and going to one of those places. For me, it only makes sense. If we look at On Point, which is in New York City, they will start microdosing somebody and then provide oxygen and other options. And that's the beauty, one of the beauties of an overdose um, site or, or response site, if you will, to keep them alive. But here's the thing that gets my heart. You go in, you have this disease, you're going to use. If you use on the streets or you use at home, you have no backup in any way, shape or form there, number one. But number two, when you go in and you are in the throes of wanting to need your substance, whether it's methadone, fentanyl, um, heroin, cocaine, the mixes that are on the streets today, what you don't have is somebody who can then talk to you once you've had your, your fix, if you will, and you kind of stabilize. You, you don't have somebody that sits with you and says, so how's it going for you right now? What are things that are working for you? What are things that are not working for you? And the real value of an opioid um, overdose response site is that there you not only have safe medical care, but you also then have, your, uh, you're observed for a period of time, 30 minutes, 20 minutes, depending on you. But then you have services, social services that can talk to you about what's going on. Well, I don't have food for my kids or I don't have a roof over my head or the landlord's threatening to kick me out, or I really am thinking about treatment, but I don't even know how to go about it, or I lost my Medicaid. That's the real, that's another beauty. And really the power for me of the opioid response sites, the opioid response sites, because then you're, you're, you're now you can interact with somebody who is stable. And I know there are people out there that think if you're using substances, you're not stable, but that's really not true. That's really not the case. There are, there are some that are, especially when they have the co-occurring mental health issues. However, being able to offer services to somebody who's been able to use safely, they're okay. You develop friendships at the On Point in Canada and Vancouver, like I said, they develop relationships with people. They help people. People are ready to go to treatment, not always. That's not the goal. The goal is to keep them alive. But if you can then have a human contact with someone, you're treated as a human being rather than stigmatized as somebody on the street or somebody as a, 
a term that we don't like. We don't like to use negative terms. We want to talk about these people as human beings. You get treated like one. And so for me, it's the safety and it's the continuing services that makes sense to me. Now, recently, there was a show on 60 Minutes. You may have seen it. Yeah. Where the where the doctor had actually found that the brain changed people with addiction. The brain was changed to the point where put a stimulator of some sort sort in the brain to reject that feeling that they that they need to have the opioids. So we we know it's a disease, and, and you know it's which I find interesting that people. No one believes that. I mean, we had a session at the State House in Massachusetts a couple of weeks ago, and different people got up to speak about the, um, the safe um, prevention, overdose prevention facilities. And one of the police officers, you know, thought, you know, he made it sound like, well, if you have one of those places, you're going to be rewarding them for, for, for doing bad. <laughs> And, right. they, and they, there's a certain group of people who just don't seem to get that. And right. how would you how would you educate somebody who's a, a state legislator or a or a um, police officer or somebody who says, "I think we should just lock them up," you know, that sort of thing, you know, because they're but you know you wouldn't lock up somebody with heart disease, right? You know, and if somebody relapsed from diabetes, you wouldn't throw them in jail. So, you know, but but yet with this, they, they treat it like it's a, like they're convicts, you know. Um, so give me your, your explanation to how you would, you know, try to turn the stigma around or, or, or help somebody who, you know, who is stubborn, like in that sense, so you can get them convinced. So one thing I will comment, the 60-minute uh, segment was fabulous. And what they did was without any anesthetic, they took us an individual into a uh, MRI type machine and they treated them with ultrasound onto the brain. And the person was awake, there was no incision, no surgery, and they reduced the noise, if you will, in the brain that said, I need it, I need it, I need it. And then they walked out an hour, basically an hour later. That's remarkable. The fact that we're at that point today in our research that there are doctors doing this is just fabulous. And think about the cost versus months and months and years and years of treatment. So that's one. As it relates to the lock them up, throw away the key, we've only been doing that for 40 years and it hasn't worked. And the money that the United States spends, state, local, federal level on prisons for people with this disease is Staggering, staggering. How do you deal with somebody like a police police officer or legislature later that doesn't believe that this is a disease, that thinks this is a choice? One hand, I would say, talk to people who have, you, you gotta get involved with the people who suffer this disease. You're not gonna find party people. If your mentality is that people who use substances are doing it to party, you have not paid attention. These people are suffering. They are not happy people. They're struggling. They're, they're, they have a very miserable life as a rule. Also, the, like you said, the issue about if they had heart disease, diabetes, obesity, 
we don't throw them away. We treat them. And there's a lot of folks who don't care about the fact that they have obesity, diabetes, heart disease. We know that. And you can't do anything about it. And in our world with stigma, it's a matter to me of talking. So the number one thing I have learned over the years, and I go back to Michael Botticelli, who was the director of the ONDCP, the Office of National uh, Crime Control and um, Prevention uh, for the president of the United States. Michael Botticelli said to us over and over again, the number one thing that has changed this country is by parents like you standing up and saying, my son, my daughter, my brother, my spouse suffered this disease and they died by bringing a face to it. So well, somebody said to me many, many years ago, you don't look like the mother of an addict. And it really knocked me back. Like, okay, what would that be? What, what would a mother of an addict look like? But we look like everybody else, whether I'm the mother, yeah. the father, the sister, the brother. So I work with police and law enforcement all the time. And I've met many of these folks and I've met, and I would say of the ones that I've worked with over the years, whether it's DEA or local, um, probably 80% plus have completely changed their minds. They've, they've opened their minds to learning and understanding that they did, these are, we, we loved our kids. They didn't, they weren't born to suffer this disease. You know, we raised them good. We did what we needed to do. And then the disease kicked in and, and it kicks in in many ways. There's no one way anybody starts down this path. It's about education, but for me, it's about putting a face, putting a voice, being honest. When we first years ago started encouraging people to put into their obituaries how their loved one died, it was uncomfortable for many people. I didn't shy away from it personally. Now it's a very common, it, people are more comfortable with it. In fact, some people use it as their point of advocacy at the time their loved one dies. I think that brings it home because this isn't about numbers. This is about human beings. And if we look at the statistics that for every person who suffers this disease, there are 12 people who love, honor, and appreciate this person at any given time. You start exponentially looking at those numbers and that's who we reach and that's how we change minds. You know, for me, I mm -hmm. ran into a dad recently. A big issue these days is uh, high potency cannabis. Maryland just made cannabis legal to certain for certain situations for adults. But this is a grandfather I met at an outdoor event um, fairly recently. And he said, it's no big deal. I didn't like it, but I won't be impacted. And I said, you have grandchildren. Do you have a grandson? He said, yes. I said, well, do you know that we have an increasing number of youth, teenage boys in particular, showing up in our EDs because of high potency cannabis creating anxiety, depression, panic attacks. And he said, well, I didn't think it was a big deal. And I said, what's the potency of the cannabis you think you're getting if you were to go to a, a, a dispensary? He had no idea. Once you start introducing that it's not the five to 10% from decades ago during the flower power world, it's 30 to 80%, depending on what you're getting. 
it blew his mind and scared him. And that's what I wanted to do. I wanted him to be afraid enough to learn, to open his mind and not dismiss this as not a big deal for him. So it's it's really education and advocacy, I guess. So in, um, in Maryland, do the prisons have uh, recovery? Uh, do they do they do a you know addiction recovery? Uh, what's the word I want to say? Well, behind are the they wall. Treat, are they treating them? Yes. So and, some years and, ago, we passed a bill mandating treatment behind the walls, and this is this is in the state system. Um, there are programs in the federal system as well, but we passed the legislation in Maryland that every uh, one of our uh, detention centers is what they're called here in Maryland had to be providing support for treatment behind the walls. And it it wasn't just for, in some programs, it's only for the last 30 to 90 days prior to release. Uh, in our particular state, it is, you come in the door, you might be in there for two months, maybe you're in there for two years. So it's for the entire time that you're there with a special emphasis on preparing them for release. So the current programs, if you're getting ready for release, uh, range from 30 to 90 days to help you prepare. And not just for, because um, they've been clean, they've been treated, if you will, or they've not been using while they were incarcerated. Uh, but also, for example, there is something called Vivitrol, which happens to be a medication uh, which can reduce cravings different from methadone and buprenorphine or suboxone-based um, products. And if, if it works for your physical body, then you can get a shot and it's good for a month and then you can continue to get injections. But the preparation there is to see that, because we know a high degree uh, or high number of people who leave incarceration, if they're not given these services and these, these uh, programs, they have a high tendency towards death not too long after they discharge from incarceration. The other thing we focus on is they need housing. They need a place to go where they're safe until they can get themselves a job because they're not leaving incarceration with money. So yes, that does that does exist in Maryland as, a, as well as in other states with what we often refer to as step-down programs. Are you familiar with Vivitrol? The complaint that I heard was that it would last maybe 26 days or 27 days. And and they couldn't get their shots until 30 days were up. As have you, has that changed or is that still a problem? So given the way things have shifted and changed, it'll depend, it could it much, very much will depend on the state. In our world, you're working with a provider and that's why it's important if you, when you, if you, if you're coming out of incarceration, that you have a provider in place that you will go to for your next Vivitrol shot. And it might be the health department. It could be a private provider. It could be any number of, of sources. But they know you. And that's part of their treatment of you. When you have a professional that's uh, prescribing Vivitrol in this particular case, they know you. And if you come in and you start saying, you know, Doc, I'm really having a challenge with this one, whether it's a doctor or a PA, um, they can adjust that. They can adjust that. So it's not, so I guess what I really like when I think about harm reduction 
it's not about finding the pinpoint solution to one aspect of this disease. It's looking at the whole person and the whole situation. So if we want to make sure nobody ever gets addicted, that's a huge, huge problem. But once we start putting multiple place or points of option into play, we can start treating people as, as a full functioning human being rather than a day account of 30 days as an example. And that's what we look at in Maryland is, and other states, but we look at what is the, what is that individual need? Because we all know metabolisms run differently, physical body size impacts things, um, liver function, kidney functions all impact how people metabolize medications. And that's another area where we look at the we get to look at the individual for treatment rather than a the number of days somebody could get it. So, and uh, on another subject like the um, the MAT program, um, are you are you in favor of that? Number one, and number two, if somebody's on the program and they go to get a job, they flunk the they you know, they flunk the exam because they've got opioids in their body. So how, how do you deal with that in Maryland? Great question. Yes, I 100% support medication-assisted treatment, uh, which is what MAT stands for. We refer to uh, medication, um, MOUD is another phraseology, but we know that, that medication-assisted treatment and there are three that are approved in the in the country and equally in, in Maryland for sure. We know that they provide a better opportunity for long-term recovery. And it takes a long time to retrain the brain without question. Now, and, and we do know that, that some of the medications like methadone and buprenorphine and such uh, have a, they may be opioids, but they, they react differently in the brain. So it's important to understand the medicine behind the medications. They don't provide the high, so to speak. They, re, they impact into the brain receptors in a different way than heroin, uh, fentanyl, and, and um, other drugs of that nature. So that's one aspect of it is is this person functioning, comes to work every day, does what he or she is, is hired to do, um, creative, whatever else you want to look at. So that, that is one, one issue. The other issue is employers who have, who have programs that support somebody in treatment, as an example. Um, I think of the program in New Hampshire, one of my favorites. The employer has programs that that allow, and we have them in Maryland as well, but this is one that stands out to me, where the employer has a program that you come forward and you say on an application or in a, in a hiring process, by the way, I have a disease and I'm being treated for it. And I take this medication that helps me stabilize to be a good employee and to be a good mother or father or whatever it is, whatever their, their story is. And the employer says, okay, we're gonna give you a 30 day trial run, which they do for any other employer or employee, sorry. Now this particular employer has a lot of programs in place. 
they trained every one of their staff employees, every one of their employees actually, in the lock zone. So if something happens on the floor of this particular shop, which is several, about five or 600 people, I believe, uh, they're up to, everybody's trained in, in the naloxone. So they're also trained in the disease of addiction. And New Hampshire has a, a big population dealing with this particular issue. Now, in one case, uh, and, and if, if you have a problem and you need to go for treatment and you come forward with it, they also give you a leave of absence, just like they would if you had uh, cancer or you had a hip replacement, you needed four weeks or six weeks off to get your, your treatments uh, in line. So it's a work-friendly environment. Uh, in that particular case, there's one story that the CEO shared that said, where he said, a crane operator was had a big load of heavy stuff, and I don't remember what that what that was, but let's call it cement. And he had the crane head over a highway, and they noticed the supervisor noticed that the crane operator had nodded off. In other words, he had been using, and he was no longer awake and aware. And it was dangerous oh. because if if he released that, it would be problematic. They were able to get his attention. They were able to move the, the crane. And they said to this gentleman, if you'll go for treatment, we will give you the time off and you will be hired back. Now, fast forward five years. He is the most highly trained crane operator in, as far as they said at the time, which was like a year ago, in, in the United States. He is now somebody who's so well-trained that he's the number one crane operator for heavy lift and he trains other people. So the whole aspect of employment is really an important component to the whole solutions that we need for this disease. Yeah, that's quite a story there. They, they let him go back and yep. started doing heavy lifting because a crane operator job is one that requires phenomenal focus. Yes. Oh, I can see that. Yeah. So um, let's do a hypothetical for a second. If if you had all this money that's coming in from the drug companies to the different states, how would you spend it? Well, funny you mention that. The Opioid Restitution Fund, or ORF, uh, is a bonus. And it's important for people to realize that it's not coming out of our tax dollars. It's not coming out of our pockets. Like you said, it's coming from the manu opioid manufacturers. And um, the states are getting a phenomenal amount of money. For example, Maryland's not 695 million, Virginia's 770 million. There's a great website, the tracker, which allows you to go in and find out exactly what your state is getting. Uh, it shows you the allocation of funding. Uh, and one thing we've tracked from for the last probably 10 years that this has been coming in, um, how to spend the money. And I manage for our local jurisdiction, for our county, I manage the Opioid Collaborative Community Council, so we make the decisions on how to spend the money. So I'm right in the middle of all that. Um, okay. And we know that there's some states that, are, that have misused the money, like filling in potholes, uh, which is one that people talk about. What I really, really pray for and hope for, for every state, every territory that's getting any of this money and others, that they have a coordinated plan on 
where to invest, that they understand that there is treatment behind the walls, there's employment um, incentives for employers, that there is prevention, that there is naloxone availability, that parity laws are being looked at, uh, that our children and youth in the state of Maryland, we have no treatment beds for a youth at all right now, zero. They all closed down. Um, so for me, it goes back to what is your community or your area or your state doing and not doing and where they're doing treatment, where they're doing medication assisted treatment, where they're doing recovery uh, supports. Just because you've been to treatment doesn't mean that you're, you're rock and rolling. It means you're on the next step because recovery needs housing, it needs employment. Um, in many cases, it needs food. Um, I'm working with a client right now who um, middle-class gal, lots of money, got uh, lost her home, lost her family, and um, had gone from, you know, really lovely lifestyle to leaving treatment and having to be given a bag of food because she had no money and she had no access to food. Very much a humbling thing for her. So where are the programs needed in your area? Um, in, in my organization, we provide scholarships for folks leaving treatment or incarceration going into recovery housing, as an example. That's just one of the many things that, that we do. So that's really the, the broad answer to your question, Tony, is where are things going and where are they not going? And the thing I loved about Massachusetts was I love the prioritization that I see happening at the, at the state level in Massachusetts so that there can be focus on the recovery level. The, the folks like you and I that, that uh, are trying to help people today who are struggling to maintain their sense of sobriety stay in recovery. And that takes a lot of work. Um, and we're really fighting through that in Maryland um, because it gets really complicated. So I, I, when I think about it, honestly, Tony, I have so many documents I could share with you that have recommendations that come from various states. I'm impressed with um, Nevada, Maine, um, in particular, Kentucky, Massachusetts. There's many states that have shown us how to go forward. Any, any organization, whether it's a local or the national level, if they get confused, look up some information. They're gonna give you some great examples of, of where to invest. Locally, we're investing in vending machines. They're, they'll be publicly available so that anybody can go into a vending machine location and get naloxone right out of the vending machine, no cost. They can go in and get a sterile syringe, no cost, get it immediately. Get um, STI uh, uh, kits for uh, sexually transmitted diseases. Get condoms, get um, a material for AA or NA if that's something they're interested in. So vending machines is one thing we're investing in. We're investing in two, um, two additional people for our school system. So one that can update the curriculum that needs to be done for um, educating on this disease, another program person uh, to put down the program across our 17 schools. We have uh, some funds going to the police and people aren't necessarily excited about the police getting any money. But this is a program which educates the police, back to your point earlier, that helps them move away from the stigma that they had into understanding the disease that it is. Um, 
So that's some of the things that we're working on locally for, with the local funds that we get. So there's local and then there's um, their state. So I guess I'll, I'll stop there, Tony, because I could talk about this for probably two days. Yeah, well, okay, well, it's, it gives me an idea. So let me throw out another question at you. Um, and I know part of the answer, but with so much fentanyl coming into the country, uh, if you were in charge of the Border Patrol or the DEA or who's ever in charge, um, where would you where would you focus on? How would you stop the influx of fentanyl coming into the country? Great question. So we know that um, the precursors for creating fentanyl come basically from China and Turkey, and they end up in this case in Mexico where then they come together in very, very, very sophisticated organizations um, to make the fentanyl itself. And it comes across the borders in very thin films or various forms. I'm not sure. Um, I'm impressed with what the DEA is doing already. Stuff comes in inside people, um, that have it on their person. It comes in in cattle that are brought across the border. It comes across in cars. It comes across in so many different ways. We know that it comes across in drones that fly across the border and drop it, you know, in the U.S. There's just so many ways. I don't, and then, and then in China, of course, things that are, are uh, shipped, that end up, um, in the, in the harbors, if you will, of our country. That's a tough one. It's very tough. And one of the other aspects to me is people understanding that fake pills are one of the more deadly versions we have these days with people getting the, the raw fentanyl, bring it into their home laboratories or the garage or wherever and making fake pills and putting them out. So another thing that is, is in our vending machines is the fentanyl test strips so that you can test anything that you're given to see if it has fentanyl in it, which is highly likely, but you don't know dosage. So I don't know that I have any better answers than what the DEA is doing already, quite honestly. What's the size? You, you, you show me a thing with your fingers. The people at home can't see that. I know. So if there, if there were, Give, give me a comparison to something. Is it okay? Is so, it in, isn't a container like a softball or, or a container think like about a your, the credit card? Think about a credit card. Yeah. Think about that being thinner than a credit card and how easy it is to carry that across the border. So think of something really, really, really small and thin, like, like microfilm, microfiche, as an example. It can come in as small and as thin as that. It and how many happen. how many doses would that be? For? I'm not the expert to answer that honestly, Tony. About that particular size, um, it's even the powdered forms that are coming in. I would think they're it, it, the ones I've seen are equivalent to the powder forms of heroin, uh, cocaine, 
those come in oftentimes in bags that, as an example, they can come in in, the, in bags inside a cow that the cattle has brought across as something for meat. And then when the cows go to slaughter, they remove them. So the sizes can vary differently. And if you think about what could a drone carry uh, across a border, it's gonna be more of the microfilm size is it's fairly lightweight compared to a, a bag of powdered uh, fentanyl as an example, or these days xylazine, uh, which is just really, really prolific coming out in the, the fentanyl supplies. So it, what you're saying is that chances are the people who are coming across the border illegally, like the people from Venezuela or Guatemala and so forth, the odds of them carrying fentanyl is pretty slim. Sounds like they wouldn't be candidates for that. Sounds I more like agree. Yeah, I think you're right. I honestly think you're right. I think that's, uh, that's not a place that I would look. When I think about all the books I've read and people I've talked to that, that literally, I've talked to people who come across the border. Today, they have their citizenship and they have this, then they have that. That was not on. That was not an option for them. That just to survive this horrific trip, they're not going to come in in the volumes you're talking about, or people are concerned with. That's for sure. They, they yeah. you know, uh, from, I'm impressed that they can still walk across the border by the time they get here. It's amazing. It's a long walk, especially from, if they're south of the Panama Canal. You know, and they have to cross through that jungle area and all the mountains. And yes, <clears throat> it's mind blowing because most people like to park up close to the supermarket because they don't want to walk <laughs> 20 steps. Oh, <laughs> that's know. a good, good point. Good metaphor. I like that. Yeah. Little, little difference in motivation, I guess. Huh? Um, yes, very much so. Yeah. So you, you've been now all of the work you do, you, you, you don't get paid for anything you're doing. That's correct. Um, I reached an age where I'm fortunate. I'm the kind of person that uh, raising my son, um, I had lost a daughter before that, um, before birth due to a medical mistake. So it was just Jim and I for a long time. And I'm the kind of person that always worried about having money. So I, I put money aside every chance I got. And then I reached a place um, where I was able to do this without charging money. Now, when I go out and do speaking uh, events, uh, like the one up in um, in Framingham, I did that because I love the people that put it together. And I didn't charge, you know, they paid my, uh, my room, you know, hotel room for a couple of nights. But when I'm asked to come speak, um, and it's outside my realm, uh, and they have speaker fees, then I ask them to donate it to our nonprofit. And that goes goes back to the nonprofit, which turns right around and goes back out to people who need recovery housing or some scholarship of some kind. So I don't take any money personally for the work that I do. It oh, frees me up, you know, really. Yeah, it's very generous of you, you know, to be able to do all that. Um, and I thank you, but I don't, I don't even think about it that way. I guess because the passion is such that I don't want to see another mother, another father, another sibling, um, another friend 
bury another love another loved one and we know that's going to happen there's no end to this disease as there's no, no end heart heart disease or diabetes or cancer but we can vastly improve it with our attitude right it's um de definitely a problem is attitude with the there's this old one side group that just says well just tell them to stop you know they just yeah. They think it's a mental weakness or something, you know, and they, they just can't get over that. And they, uh, this is the same person who might be 100 pounds overweight because they're eating so much sugar, drinking 20 Cokes a day or something, you know, but, but because this person dies quickly or immediately or has a, uh, it's a different kind of issue. You know, we, every, everything is, is um, got its, its story behind it. So I think the number one disease in the world today is lack of self-esteem. That if people, when people feel better about themselves, they feel it, better about other people. If you don't think well of yourself for whatever reason, then you tend to want to pick on others and make yourself better than. So the more we raise people's self-esteem, the less likely they are, less likely typically they are to judge other people. So that's my that's my fantasy solution for many of our world problems. Oh yeah, I can. <clears throat> I would agree with that. And uh, that sounds kind of strange coming from me, but uh, putting more women in charge would be a big thing for me. As uh, of all the people I speak with, it seems like women have a different way of dealing with with the logic of things. And. Uh, I agree. This they they don't have the kind of egos that some of our men, especially our politicians, have. You know oh. this. I remember we had a bill in Massachusetts back in the late fifties that um, anybody who wants to run for public office should have to have a psychiatric exam, and they were going to be tested to see if they're egocentric or anything. You know. Wow. And of course, of course, it never got passed because. All the legislators that would have had to pass the test didn't want to take it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so that's uh, um, so. I really appreciate you taking the time out today to talk to me. I, I know we could. I think we could have gone on for another hour or two here. There's so much more you have to talk about, yeah. and yeah. I have a lot of questions, but we're running out of time. And one one last thing: what would you suggest? What would you say to the general population? Is the best thing that um, you want them to know? The thing that I really want people to understand is everything is more complex than they want to believe. So when they have an opinion, check it out. Check your opinion out. Find out if there's something additional that you need to understand rather than from the jump, what you think is the answer. I guarantee you, no matter what it is you think, there's something more to be learned, which will change the conversation. And that's what we need to do is continue to expand and change the conversation. And the only way we do that is by educating ourselves, growing our, our, our understanding of this disease and the various solutions. I'm reading a book now on harm reduction. I had no idea about some of the history. So that's my thing is don't get stuck in your version of the world. Open yeah. your mind up, get, understand the complexities and see what else there is to learn 
so that the sun will shine brighter on you and whatever solutions you bring forward. Excellent. I was going to say, it's not what you want it to be. It's what it really is, what you got to understand. Yes. Yeah, that's I get that. So I really want to thank you, Barbara, for the, for the time you gave me today and the audience. We really appreciate it. And You're this welcome, is Tony. Thanks. This is Tony LaGreca. This is the Courage to Hope. And we've been listening to Barbara Allen from Maryland, who's been involved in many groups and many different things since the passing of her son and several other relatives. And we really appreciate all her knowledge. Again, thank you very much. Until next time. <laughs>